Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This is a solo episode, I'm going to be answering some questions that people asked me. Uh, I put a call out on Twitter and Facebook and and people could email me if they wanted with questions about them or questions about me and I'm going to try and answer some of those questions this week. I'm also thinking of having a section going forward, going forward, uh, in the next, in this year, I'm thinking of making the podcast a little more structured, not properly structured, but a few segments, repeated segments, things like question and answer, or uh, if you have a suggestion, let me know. Email me on alicerfraser at gmail.com. I quite like reading out emails sometimes, so if you want me to read, read out an email, feel free to say that that's okay for me to do. Otherwise, I tend to err on the side of not because I don't want to um, make something public that you didn't mean to be public, if that makes sense. Anyway, so here we go. Questions. I will try to answer these. I haven't prepared any answers for these, uh, so I'll try to answer them as honestly as possible. So Peter Langstaff on Twitter has asked, what's your biggest asset and liability with what you do? Huh. Uh, thank you for the question, Peter. If by what you do you mean comedy, because you could also just mean talking into a microphone, I don't know what I think, I don't know what I think I do. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly Okay, let's say comedy, like to limit the scope of the question. My biggest asset when it comes to comedy is that I'm obsessed with words. I love them. I love making meaning and deconstructing and reconstructing meaning. And so that lets me write jokes. It lets me be articulate about ideas. And it lets me think about the way that people say things, uh, which is not necessarily always the best way to say things or a clear way or it's maybe deliberately untrue. There's a certain linguistic tricks that we do that are lies and very effective lies and they can change the way we think about the world or they can change the way we think about ourselves. I think that is my biggest asset. My biggest liability is the fact that I'm not that funny. <laughs> I, You know, you see people on stage who just have this innate either goofiness or just they're just funny. Just they walk on stage, you start laughing. The first thing they say, the moment they open their mouths, they're just funny. And I don't have that. I have had to learn how to do funny naturally without any kind of input or impetus, as you can tell from listening to me. I'm probably witty, but not necessarily funny. And that's what's come out. This was, that was one of the interesting things that came out with this podcast. I wanted to see what would happen with this podcast if I did nothing, you know, if I didn't have a joke to write for, if I didn't have a structure, if I didn't have a deadline, if I didn't have an audience, what would I say and how would I say it? Here's a second question. Uh, so yes, I think that's my biggest liability. Second question is, Lizzie, is there an etiquette anymore about how long people should date before certain things happen? Interesting, Lizzie. Interesting. I um, There are so many etiquettes, I think, now that, that it's almost like there is none. I think it partly depends on the terms that you set for the relationship when it starts. 
but I do think that there are so many different kinds of etiquette that you can it's as it's almost like you set your own from the get-go so if you're having a really casual relationship then it can be casual forever but it's it's going to hit a point at which somebody wants to change the status for whatever reason either they're going to want to move on or be more serious or uh, get married or and none of those things are on the table in the context they're not even on the table in the context of a casual casual relationship so you need to change the relationship and then that comes with its own timeline I think you can't go from casual to proposal you need to kind of so, I, okay, here's a clear answer to your question. Maybe I should have prepared answers. Um, here's a clear answer. There is not a timeline, but there's a process line, I think, in terms of etiquette. As everyone can do things their own way, you can meet someone on the street and say, marry me. But in terms of norms and etiquette, it's not a fixed period of time, but it is a fixed process so I would say it's more normal than not for people to move in before they get married and before they move in they want to be serious and exclusive or have if not exclusive had had the conversation about the open relationship so they want before you move in you want to have had that conversation and the logistics of whether you're going to be open and how how that's going to work because you want you don't want to be springing that on one another while you're already in the same house and then before that you want to be dating you want to be doing fun things together and I would say the etiquette normally nowadays is most people have sex fairly early into their dating experience often before things become serious although if you have like a religious or relatively conservative upbringing as I did that's not the order the order comes switched over so there is an answer to your question, Lizzie. I hope that helps. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the situation is, so I could probably be more helpful if I knew more particulars. Hmm. If you want to let me know any more particulars, I can answer it in the next episode, more specific to you. Sorry, just a brief pause there uh, to check my notes. I got one more from Lisa Futterman. Not one more question. Many more questions, but one I just got in, uh, which is from Lisa Futterman, who says, how to grade exams without ending up hating yourself and the world? Huh. Um, I think it depends how bad the students are. Sometimes I really enjoy bad writing uh, because it's funny and it's fun to play with. Uh, any repetitive task, I think the, the way to do it is set yourself achievable little targets, little fun targets, finishing something in a certain time, uh, give yourself a little congratulations or a high five or, you know, do it in 20-minute segments with five-minute breaks so that you don't burn out. Um, set better exam questions if you have control over that. Set exam questions where there are actually, where there isn't one answer unless you're teaching maths or science. But even then, I think you could probably do something where there are potentially creative solutions. Um, don't hate yourself, generally, I think is a good rule don't hate the world, just be disappointed in it. I hope that answers your question. Uh, generally, yes. I think try to find work that you enjoy and if you have bits of that work that you enjoy that you don't enjoy, then um, 
just balance them out against the parts that you do love. If you think, well, this is the outcome of all those pleasant hours of teaching, then you're more likely to be less resentful. I hope that's good advice. I'm drinking uh, some very nice high-quality sencha from the Japanese embassy, so that's nice. Um, just so you know what is, what's happening in my mouth while I'm answering your questions. Uh, this is a question from Patrick, who says, I would like to hear about your podcasting experience thus far. That's an interesting question. Um, as uh, My first encounter with podcasts was relatively early. I probably started listening to them regularly in 2009 or 2010. Um, I listened a lot in New York. I then thought about starting a podcast but couldn't find a partner. And then I thought, I'll just do it anyway. And then I still didn't. And then I went to the podcast festival in LA and I got called up by Mark Maron to do a very quick Q&A before his main podcast. And then I thought, oh, he has millions of listeners. If even one in 10,000 Googles me, I'd like to have a podcast up by the time they do that. And so I started doing this podcast. At the beginning, it was with one partner, Sean Ticehurst, who did more editing and made it sound more radio-y. And he was a good foil for me because I think left to my own devices, I can sound a bit lectury or a bit dry or not that funny. I'm funnier when I'm bouncing off somebody. And Sean, while not being a stupid person, was is not is educated in a completely different way from me so you had that kind of explaining to one another vibe that i think gives a lot of a lot of juice to any audio relationship you want to have somebody asking questions and somebody answering them and he knew a lot of stuff that i didn't know and i knew a lot of stuff that he didn't know and then he dropped out because of other commitments he just stopped being able to podcast as regularly and i thought well we can podcast less regularly he and I, or I can just keep doing it. And I had this commitment that I'd made to myself to just put it out every week if I could, uh, which became more important throughout the year as things became more and more hectic. And it became a real point of pride to manage to get it out every week, no matter what else got in the way, just to try and get it out every week. If not Thursday, then Friday. If not Friday, then Saturday. If not Saturday, then Sunday. But just to try and get it out uh, was a really big thing. In terms of my experience of that, it was good. I mean, it made me feel good to be able to put something out every week. It made me feel happy and competent, even though it's such a small thing to be able to do. Any, any idiot can do a podcast, and many idiots do. I felt um, like it was an accomplishment, and on weeks where nothing else could be done I could at least do that and again that was very important for me in the face of the helplessness that I felt through most of this year I mean I felt helpless about my mum's sickness most of my life that I can remember but this was a particularly vicious kind of helplessness as things became more and more serious so I mean that might be a lot to put on a podcast but that's my experience of it. It's, a, it's an anchor point. So, good question. Good question. 
Here is another one. Uh, Chris Wainhouse says, why have you unfollowed me again on Twitter? Um, Chris is not a listener to this podcast, nor was that question, I think, a uh, question in answer to my call out for questions for this podcast. I think it's just because I unfollowed him. Um, not because he's not funny. He's very, very, very funny, Chris Wainhouse. But he kept posting these pictures of young Palestinian boys in headlocks by Israeli soldiers and you know, 14, 15-year-old boys, and there's a political can of worms there that I think is, it just annoyed me, basically. I think that the putting Palestinian teenagers in headlocks is the least of the bad things that Israeli soldiers do. There are many more things that you could call them to account for that are much more justifiably wrong things, I think you underestimate uh, how annoying 15-year-old boys can be when they have guns and how likely it is that they'd be put in a headlock for doing not very good things. Um, So I said I can either get into that debate on Twitter, which is a terrible thing to do, getting into the debate about what actually is wrong and why it doesn't do you any good doesn't do your argument a service to manipulate stuff that doesn't necessarily serve your argument into seeming that it serves your argument. Um, Because there's, I agree entirely, that a lot of the things that the State of Israel does are insanely wrong, morally and I think mainly morally is the the thing, uh, militarily just, just wrong. And, and there's a really strong argument to be made for a lot of those things. But I think if you're a soldier and there's somebody who is trying to kill you and they happen to be a 14-year-old boy, putting him in a headlock is not not the thing that you want to be calling the UN in about. There are other things that are worse and more worth focusing on. It's in the same way as some women's rights groups inflate statistics on sexual assault to include things like, have you ever been spoken to aggressively on the street? And I think that by diminishing, by trying to make your argument encompass everything that is slightly wrong, you diminish the power of your argument to address the things that are really, truly, horribly wrong. And I don't know if that's correct, but that's my opinion. And I thought that would be difficult to address on Twitter, so I just unfollowed Chris Wainhouse. I may well follow him again, but I didn't want to have the fight. He's a good fighter. I'm not a good fighter. I didn't want to have the fight. Easier just to walk away for now. Now, James Savage says, where would you like to be in three years and why? Question mark, question mark. Advice for me, top five must-see MICF acts to see in 2015. By MICF, he means Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, James, I think I'll do that closer to the time. But for now, I'd say see me, see Ronnie Cheng, see Matt O'Kine, see Laura Davis, uh, and see uh, Dave Anthony, who's coming from internationally. He runs the Dollop podcast, which is hilarious, and you should listen to if you can. Um, and I'll keep one floating slot for somebody that I've forgotten. <laughs> I don't know. Demi Lardner, probably. She's great. Um, 
where would I like to be in three years and why? I don't really think about the future that much. I think this is one thing, again, that's come up from having a sick mum. I don't, I don't really believe that the future will happen. Um, on a more abstract level, I'd like to decide about kids, I think. In the next three years, I'd like to have a firm opinion about whether I want to have them and if I want to have them, how I'm going to do it. This isn't exactly the most stable lifestyle, so whether I can get myself a breakfast radio job or some other secure income stream will probably be determinative of whether I make that decision. Uh, And if I don't make that decision, that decision will eventually make itself. So I would rather in the next three years make a solid determination on that decision. Uh, That's probably not the answer you were looking for. Uh, Mitchell, do you have any... Do you have any New Year's goals you wholeheartedly intend to fulfil other than the obligatory goals, eat well, exercise, etc.? Good question, Mitchell. I like the way you've excluded the normative ones. Hmm, I actually do have a little list here. Let me look. Um, I wrote a list. Ah, here you go. I wrote a list this morning when I woke up. I uh, didn't think I would be sharing it. Let's see if it's any good. Aha. Uh-huh. Number one, be definite in brackets more. Be more definite. Yes, I think I, think I would like to be less wishy-washy, particularly, um, and that's something I've been doing more uh, this year. I try to be more definite and, and not apologetic and you know, know what I want and figure out what I want and get it or ask for it or all of those things, but I think it's better that's something to keep working on. Number two, articulate what you admire. I think because I was, uh, I mean, I was brought up to value stoicism. I sometimes don't say when I like things and I'm not appreciative enough of people. and I'm not, I don't give approval in the free-flowing way that I find appealing in other people. Uh, so I think I should do that more. You know, I had, my father was always very sweet, but he would give out approval in measured ways. And so I always think of it as something valuable, but it's not like it's a limited resource. So uh, I think just generally allow myself to appear more appreciative of the things that I am appreciative of and show my enjoyment when I'm enjoying myself. Otherwise, I think maybe you make the people around you feel insecure and that's not a good thing. Number three, eat less sugar, worry less about sugar. Number four, have the hard conversations when they need to be had when they need to be had, not after they need to be had. Number five, ask people what they mean when they say things. There are many problems that I've got into in my life that have involved me going, yeah, 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 uh, when I don't actually mean I truly understand what you're saying. In order to avoid awkwardness, pretending to hear something that you haven't heard, or when somebody's asking you to do work, saying, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to do that without saying, hey, um, this is how much I cost. Huh? So those things um, are my New Year's resolutions that I actually intend to keep and hope that I can, uh, hope that I can do that. Um, oh, this is an, I don't know, this is fun for me. I'm hoping it's fun for you, answering questions about myself. I'd, I'm surprised at how many people asked me questions about me rather than asking for help. I'm not disapproving, I'm, I'm just surprised. Uh, Reese asks, how can I be better with money? Reese, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not 
great with money. I, I'm good at saving because I don't spend money very much. But then if I do spend it, I tend to sort of spend it relatively extravagantly on travel or presents. I, I don't, I don't budget well. I just sort of, I don't save money. I sort of collect it in a weird way. I think that's because I've all of the jobs that I've had have been so disparate in terms of the amount of work you do versus the amount you're paid for them. I've done work for $6 an hour that I loved and work for $2,000 for half a day that I've loathed. So I so I don't feel like money's necessarily tied to effort in the way that I probably should. Uh, so I don't have advice for you, Reese, unless you worry about money, in which case my answer would be don't worry. Uh, or take it out of your hands. That's a good one. Take it out of your hands. So have like a certain amount of your paycheck check goes automatically into a long-term savings account that you can't access or, you know, stuff like that. Make sure your bill payments are automated and probably at the beginning of your pay cycle rather than the end so you just don't have the money there to play with. Make sure that all your obligations are covered before you need to be good with money. So automation, I think, is the best way to be good with money. Hope that was helpful, Reese. Um, Alice Grundy says, how to get the hecklers in a performance or in life? I think those are two different things. In a performance, it's always a power play unless they're too drunk to know what's going on, in which case it's just stupid and you need to get them taken out by security. But if they're, if they're conscious enough to engage with you properly, then it's a power play. They want attention or they like you or they don't like the fact that you're on stage and they're not or they want to show off to their friends. And then it's a matter of taking power back and attacking them in a way that makes them feel loved but disciplined. Uh, in life... I think hecklers are genuinely mainly trying to actually injure you, uh, whether they think it through or not. Sometimes it's anonymous commenters on the internet. Sometimes it's people who are reviewing you or uh, telling you how you should be. And that's always more about them than it is about you, in which case you can either just let it roll off you or you can address it directly and comprehensively. There's not really a middle ground. The pass-ag sort of response is not effective. It shows you are wounded without giving you power of response. Um, Or do what I do, which is have good friends who kind of (laughs) attack for you, which is what happened this year with that review, where I had friends rise up on my behalf, uh, which was daunting in a way, but really really lovely. So how to get the hecklers. Uh, Madeline says, once I was dating a really lovely guy, but as time went on, he started to develop some strange smell. I had to break up with him because I didn't know how to tell him that he smelt. I know honesty is the best most of the time, but it seems strange to tell him that he smelt bad after we were going out for half a year. So if you have any advice on handling that situation in a more mature manner than I did, I think it was stale smoke and London grime. I don't know. I just said I wasn't in a good place to be in a relationship. Yeah, a relationship with that guy, the only good place to be in a relationship with him is in a wind tunnel with you upwind. Um, Well, look, I think half a year is a difficult time because you're still at that phase where you can't just tell each other everything. 
I imagine if you really were in total love with this guy, the smell would have been something that you'd have been willing to work through. And perhaps the fact that you couldn't talk to him after half a year meant that the smell was a convenient excuse. Another possibility is that he always smelled and you only started to notice that he smelled as you fell out of love. Or the smell became more of a problem uh, the less you liked him, in the same way that any annoying habit is normally charming until you start to dislike the person, in which case it makes you want to kill them. So uh, either if you really wanted to stay with the guy or if you have this happen in future, someone starts to smell, could be an illness or something, could be that they started smoking or something, in which case you can address those things directly. You say, oh, you smell strange to me. I always smell strange to myself when I'm sick. Maybe you've got an infection or something. Or if it's something where they've started smoking, you say, I can't handle the smell. Sorry. And then you you either make an ultimatum, fix the smell or I leave, or you just keep bothering them about it until they hate you and leave you. Um, yeah. I think those are the solutions. If you do love the person very much and you cannot handle the smell, then you have to start looking at, you know, sexy showers together. That's a good one. Or just accidentally spraying them with deodorant every time they walk in the room because you thought accidentally that they were a cockroach, spray, spray, spray. Uh, And then if they ask you why you would spray a cockroach with deodorant, don't answer. (laughs) I hope that's a good solution to your problem. Although it's not a problem anymore, but it is a good abstract thing to wonder about. It is a problem uh, insofar as I'm sure other people are facing this problem. And I hope those people are listening. Uh, Sam Streeter says, What is an unforgivable thing for a friend to do to you? What's the worst thing you've forgiven? Huh. I am bad at holding grudges. So, I mean... Somebody, I don't know, what's the worst thing I've forgiven? People who've done me wrongs are mainly people who I love dearly. Um, And if they're not, then I don't forgive them. Or I don't, I just kind of cut them off. And then it's not a matter of forgiving them or not because they've been punished. I think you've, to forgive someone is if you have something that they really owe you because they've done you wrong. There's something unbalanced in the ledger. And I think if you rebalance the ledger, then forgiveness is not the question. So if they do this thing that is unforgivable, you cut the friendship off and that's the punishment. And then there's no, it's not a question of forgiveness. You don't hate them anymore, but they're just not part of your life. Um, And then if they're people you really love and they've done something horrible, then you forgive them and you just forgive them and you kind of to to forgive them you kind of have to forget what what the feeling was of hurt um my forgot my brother forgot to mention me in his wedding speech he seemed very upset about that but i understood that he just forgot and then some some of my friends were like oh don't you feel hurt by that and i thought not really i guess that's and then other things I don't know. I think all of the other things that were unforgivable were so hurtful that I'd rather not bring them up. And the things that I have forgiven people for, I kind of pack away into the past. And I don't really think about them very much. 
I hope that's an answer. It's not a great answer. Uh, maybe what you want to ask is, should I forgive someone for something horrible that they've done to me? In which case I'd have to know who they were to you and what the horrible thing was um, to answer it. But feel free to, if you want to, email me and I will try to answer the actual question if that was not the actual question. If it was the actual question, I hope that I've answered it to your satisfaction. Which I think brings us uh, to the end of this episode. 26 minutes is a lot of time for me just to be talking uh, to my beautiful microphone and I'm not sure if it becomes annoying to have an unbroken voice stream. I'd like your feedback on this episode. If you'd like a small segment of question and answer in the upcoming year, um, every week I I could answer one or two questions. If you'd like that, uh, email me on alicerfraser at gmail.com Hassle me on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. If you have a podcast that you like that you think I would be good on, um, it's good to tweet them and put me on their radar. Or vice versa, if there's someone who you really like who you'd like me to talk to, let me know who they are and I'll try to get them on because I really do want you to enjoy listening to this. That's why I do it. So, um, like I said, email me, tweet me. Look me up on Facebook. I'll see you next week. I'll talk to you then. You're having tea with Alice.